right, here's some news from deep in the heart of Texas. The discovery of 56 stone tools four feet underground near Austin makes certain what most archaeologists have suspected for quite a while, that human beings were in the Americas making stone tools 15,000 years ago. The date is about 2,000 years before the appearance of the so-called Clovis culture, who had rather distinctively fluted and notched arrowheads. Though evidence for pre-Clovis human activity has been accumulating for decades, archaeologists have found a few unusually old sites in places as far apart as coastal Chile and central Pennsylvania, but there have always been problems with the dating of these particular artifacts, but the, the Texas report Pretty clear that the layer is 13.2 to 15.5 thousand years old. So it looks pretty definitive. The age of uh, human activity in uh, the Americas has been pushed back a couple thousand years, but the mystery remains as to who made the tools. Anthropologists believe the first Americans migrated across a land bridge connecting eastern Siberia to Alaska, then made their way south along the Pacific coast and through an ice-free corridor in glacier-covered North America. A site in southern Chile called Monteverde has evidence of human occupation at least 14,000 years ago. And dried human excrement found in a cave in south-central Oregon have also been dated to 14,000 years before the present time. This particular specimen of pre-Clovis people uh, has been analyzed in terms of its mitochondrial DNA. It indicates the producers of the feces were of Asian origin and could be, although not necessarily were, ancestors of American Indians. My hunch is in the next uh, few decades we're going to solve these mysteries of human migration based on, uh, you know, the power of DNA evidence and the fact that there are many archaeologic sites out there that are probably still waiting to be discovered. And this correspondent is finding it rather curious that the news from Japan seems to be stoking the anti-nuclear forces in a way I can't quite understand. I'd like to quote a couple people sounding off on this. First, from The Week magazine, March 26th edition. Interview with David Spiegelhalter, Winston Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk at the University of Cambridge. David Spiegelhalter studies risks and uncertainty in the lives of individuals and society and helps run the Understanding Uncertainty website. Commenting about the uh, nuclear accident in Japan, he noted that nuclear radiation ticks all the boxes for increasing the fear factor of people. It's invisible. An unknowable quantity, people don't feel in control of it, they don't understand it. But he noted that nuclear power has been staggeringly safe, but that doesn't stop people from being anxious about it, just as airplanes and trains are amazingly safe ways to travel, but people still worry far more about plane crashes than car crashes. The magazine said, People are calling the release of radiation from the Fukushima nuclear power station in Japan a catastrophe. Is this justified? Spiegelhalter. This is indeed a really serious event, but it has to be put in the context of the earthquake and tsunami which led to it, and which has been the direct case of massing su- and which has been the direct case of massive suffering, which is still continuing. Obviously, there are threats from the nuclear power station, but they are limited and they are quantifiable. It's not a Chernobyl magazine. Many governments are suspending their nuclear power projects in response to the events in Japan. Is it sensible to make these decisions in the aftermath of a disaster? Spiegelhalter. This is a tricky one. The Fukushima power station was hit by an unimaginable force. One of the things you learn when you study risk is that surprising things happen. We have to expect the unexpected. Of course, political decisions are made on the basis of how people feel. That's a politician's job, perhaps, not just to respond to objective measurements of risk, but what people want. 
but it's good to try and keep a perspective on what the risks are for all viable alternatives, including the risk of relying on unsavory regimes for sources of energy. And writing in The Guardian, George Monbiot said, You will not be surprised to hear that the events in Japan have changed my view of nuclear power. You will be surprised to hear how they have changed it. As a result of the disaster at Fukushima, I am no longer nuclear neutral. I now support the technology. A crappy old plant with inadequate safety features was hit by a monster earthquake and a vast tsunami. Yet, as far as we know, no one has received a lethal dose of radiation. Some Greens have wildly exaggerated the dangers of radioactive pollution. For a clearer view, look at the graphic published by XKCD.com. It shows that the average total dose from the Three Mile Island disaster from someone living within 10 miles of the plant was 1 625th the maximum yearly amount permitted for U.S. radiation workers. This, in turn, is half of the lowest one-year dose clearly linked to an increased cancer risk, which in its turn is 180th of an invariable fatal exposure. I'm not proposing complacency here. I'm proposing perspective. If other forms of energy production caused no damage, these impacts would weigh more heavily. But energy is like medicine. If there are no side effects, the chances are it doesn't work. Like most Greens, I favor a major expansion of renewables. I can also sympathize with the complaints of their opponents. At high latitudes like ours, most small-scale ambient power production is a dead loss. Generating solar power in the UK involves a spectacular waste of scarce resources. It's hopelessly inefficient and poorly matched to the patterns of demand. Wind power in populated areas is largely worthless. This is partly because we built our settlements in sheltered places, partly because turbulence caused by the buildings interferes with the airflow and chews up the mechanism. Micro-hydropower might work for a farmhouse in Wales, but it's not much use in Birmingham. He comments on water power by noting that the damming and weiring of British rivers for water mills was a small-scale, renewable, picturesque, and devastating. By blocking the rivers and silting up the spawning beds, they helped bring an end to the gigantic runs of migratory fish that were once among our great natural spectacles and which fed much of Britain, wiping out sturgeon and shad as well as most trout and salmon. He closes. The energy source to which most economies will revert if they shut down their nuclear plants is not wood, water, wind, or sun, but fossil fuel. On every measure, climate change, mining impact, local pollution, industrial injury, and death, even radioactive discharges, coal is a hundred times worse than nuclear power. Thanks to the expansion of shale gas production, the impacts of natural gas are catching up fast. Yes, I loathe the liars who run the nuclear industry. Yes, I would prefer to see the entire sector shut down if there were harmless alternatives. But there are no ideal solutions. Every energy technology carries a cost. So does the absence of energy technologies. Atomic energy has just been subjected to one of the harshest of possible tests, and the impact on people on the planet has been small. The crisis at Fukushima has converted me to the cause of nuclear power. And a related story that uh, may be a good way to close today's show. It turns out that uh, fears of nuclear meltdown have caused a number of European countries to ban Simpsons episodes, which feature jokes about nuclear meltdowns. Homer Simpson, of course, works at the Springfield Nuclear Power Plant, where safety regulations are notoriously slack. He, in fact, works as the nuclear safety inspector, though he constantly falls asleep and neglects his duties. 
And as a result, uh, cable networks in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland are going to review episodes to make sure they don't make light of nuclear crises, at least for the time being. Austria has used the most extreme censorship so far, banning a total of eight episodes until a review at the end of April. Personally, I would uh, suggest that the Europeans not rely upon The Simpsons to gain data about nuclear energy. And no word yet on whether any insensitive cartoons about tsunamis will be under review. That's it for today's program. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to author Sherry Holbrook-Lebedis about her wonderful book, You Came Here to Die, Didn't You? You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.